Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 365. And this week is a week that a lot of you long-time listeners have been waiting for. This gentleman has come up in conversation so many times. And it's because I absolutely adore him. Weirdly, a few hours earlier, before recording this, I was talking to previous guest, uh, Jody Ann Bickley, and the conversation just got round to how much we absolutely adore this week's guest, Musa Okwonga. It's a wonderful conversation. We chatted for about 10 minutes before we got started. Then we started rolling. Then we talked for 90 minutes. And then we chatted for half an hour afterwards. And I was feeling up for the rest of the week. I spoke to Polar Bear immediately as, as we f- finished because we're mutual f- friends and we we both miss Musa greatly in this period of time when we can't hang out. Um, and yeah, we both just discussed how how much of an uplifting guy he is. There's a a bit in this where I I, I reveal a message he sent me and a question he asked that was um, it sums Musa up so perfectly as a person. So a lot of you will be tuning in because you're familiar with Musa and you want to hear more from him. But for anyone who isn't, you're about to find an amazing human. His new book, in the end, it was all about love. We talk about it a a little bit more towards the end. It's kind of what we were meant to be here to plug and talk about, but we haven't seen each other in so long and we haven't looked at each other in the face and spoken, which we got to do here. So we had a really lovely catch up. Who shall I get you to recommend if if this is your first time tuning in? The two appearances of Kay Tempest and the recent Polar Bear and Kay Tempest two-parter. So Kay has technically been on four episodes. Um, they're all really worth a listen. That that two-parter with Polar Bear was one of my absolute favourites. Jodie Ann Bickley probably comes up in conversation. I'd recommend checking um, her out. Also recommend her on the, the Mum and Mama podcast. It was a really beautiful conversation. Um, what else? The Tim Clare episode. We go into a bit of the the spoken word scene that myself moves so in your elms the in your elms episode is a beautiful one he tells some perfect stories of the bits where he spoke about his time in ireland really i didn't i didn't know about those times at all and it was so fascinating uh so, so yeah there's loads of good stuff to to check out i should have kept this short because this is a long episode but i hope you enjoy it man there's so many reasons to be stressed at the moment if you can hear noises i'm taking off knee supports because i've just been out for a late night creepy walk and i'm trying to make sure i look after my body at the moment because i'm tall yeah there's there's so much to get down about and feel everything's on your shoulders and i really hope that this 90 minute of conversation will relieve a lot of that because it really really did for me um i did last week i did a patreon zoom hangout with 40 or 50 or 60 i don't know of you lovely lot you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash pip it's only like a quid i think it's gone up to 150 or maybe i don't know i think they've added that or something on there but yeah you can go over there and subscribe and every now and then we do z- zoom hangouts um and that was another thing that really put me in a good place because it was just nice to to chat to you lovely lot that's it i'm not going to plug the web store because i want you to go and buy moose's book and to pre-order his upcoming book 
and by his previous books, really. We talk about so much, man. We get a lot in in this 90 minutes. You're going to love it. This is episode 365. Is it 365? I said that earlier without realizing that's a whole year's worth of of podcasts. In fact, as I mentioned that, shout out to Rob Alton, who in 2020 did a podcast every day and won awards for his amazing podcast. They're short, they're amazing, they're poetry. You should check them out as well. That's enough plugs. This is 365 with Musa Okwonga. So yeah, it was so funny listening to your distraction pieces podcast, the two parter with with Kate Tempest and and Stephen Camden, obviously known to us primarily as Polar Bear back in the spoken word days. It was so funny because first of all, first thing about it I struck me was it's a three hour podcast that felt like an hour because the chemistry between you three was amazing. The other thing that was really amazing was hearing them yeah. talk about their yeah. thought process, working on that um that track Concrete Pigeon for Sound of Rum. On Concrete Pigeons, yeah. It was like watching there are a bunch of interviews. I watched a lot of interviews on YouTube and one of them was Leo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy uh, for, the, for The Revenant. And, you know, when you see two people who've got such incredible respect for each other's craft, right. just working in sync. Yeah. It felt like like listening to Kay Tempest and Stephen talk about work on Concrete Pigeon, it felt like DiCaprio and, and, and Tom Hardy. Like, you know, like Tom Hardy just loves the craft. You know how like Kay really, Kay is just here for the craft. Like, Kay is almost like a Tom Hardy in the sense that it's about the work. Yeah. Completely. And just hearing them just like bring the best out of each other in the podcast, but also on the track was like, was kind of like mind blowing. It's really special. Yeah. And, 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 and the warmth and welcoming of each other um, and making them feel comfortable. It's interesting. You mentioned that as an example, because one of the reasons I really hit it off with Tom Hardy when we were doing Taboo was he later said that, wow, he learned a lot from The Revenant of how, how Leo treated people, how Leo, because yeah, right, right, in right. his mind at that point, Leo, he's the top guy. He's the top guy in the business. He's there. He doesn't have to be welcoming of everyone. He doesn't have to be, he could be very much, particularly on a film that's yeah. filmed in tough situations. He could be very much, I'm here to do my work. Yeah. The important thing is I get my shit in as such and everyone else has to work around me. But it was the complete opposite. He said he was the most welcoming and the most, caring of everyone's process i love that i love that and tom has taken that on to all of his projects like when 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 he knows he's number one on the the call sheet he's like right well it's my job to set the tone it's not only my job to do the job on camera it's my job to set the tone and yeah completely i think there was that with that conversation and explaining that between Kay and polar because yeah Polar was a kind of been around a little bit longer, but Kay was doing her thing as the on the music, so that was a a new world to him. Yet no one seemed to be f- f- flexing or throwing the, their weight around. It seemed to be very much, well, what do you need? You know, let's do it. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was there was such a sort of service to it, and I think you know the greatest art is made with love. I just finished watching uh, Road to Perdition again for the first time in 18 years. Uh, one of my favourite movies, Sam Mendes, a great, great movie. It's a kind of, yeah, uh, I suppose, a double header in terms of two Titanic performances from Paul Newman and Tom Hanks. And again, you talk about people who've got no ego running a show. 
Yeah. The tone that was set by Hanks and Newman, like the love comes out of every single scene. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, when you get like a really, there's, there's, there needs to be an expression and I'm sure there's an expression in French because the French have a word for everything. There needs to be an expression for that moment when you taste the first mouthful of a meal and you already feel sad because you know the meal's going to end. Beautiful. The yeah, meal's yeah, exquisite. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single scene of Road to Perdition <laughs> tastes like that first mouthful of that beautiful meal that you know is going to be over. I love that. Unreal. Well, yeah. I mean, I should introduce, I'm joined by Musa Okwonga. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, we've not caught up in a few years now, not face-to-face like this. We've had a few texts. So yeah. you wouldn't believe how excited I've been as soon as we lined this one up. But I also know that the listeners are excited because you're one of the most requested guests, often with <laughs> oh my goodness. confusion because I've had people message me asking if I will get Moose Rock Wonga on because they've just heard heard yeah. me mention you p- positively numerous times. And um, obviously in my, in my Essex drool, assuming everyone knows who I'm talking about, <laughs> a <laughs> lot was lost in translation, but it's exciting to have you on, man. How are you? Um, do you know what? I'm... Uh... I'm great. I'm spiritually at rest, which is really a powerful thing to say. Like after so many years of running, it feels like I'm like, I'm walking. Beautiful. I love it. It's such a strange, you know how it is. It's like an artist. It's like, um, you're looking for your place in it. And then I think I just, I just started walking one day and everything I'm doing is just, it's in the flow of things. I'm, I'm enjoying creating. I've got great friends here been in Berlin for six years now, actually having moved from Essex. Last place, shout out to Good Maze. That's the last place I was living in the UK. Yeah, nice. Uh, just yeah. around the corner from Essex. Yeah, uh, Ilford, sorry, just around the corner from Ilford. So yeah, I'm just really good, really happy at the start of the year. I love it. It's beautiful. The 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 early days of, of any artistic endeavours are very much r- running in zigzags. Of course. And both of us have had this from different, from different because we've both done a lot of different things because you've been a poet, a journalist, a musician, a podcaster, all of these things, it can be this big zigzag of like, I need to get over here. Oh no, no, I need to get over here. And the beauty of finding where you are and getting to walk in a straight line that happens to to cut through podcasting, journalism, all of these things yeah. is, is a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think um, the zigzag analogy is actually, I love that. The, the analogy I would draw is a similar one. It's almost like you're building a pyramid. Yeah. Uh, where you're kind of, you're running around and people are like, what's this guy doing? Is he actually good at any of the one things? But <laughs> yeah. so I, I don't want to be the best anything. Yeah, I just want to be someone who, when you look at, okay, who are the people who like do this really well in whatever, let's say there's like three or four fields and people are like, that guy belongs in all of the rooms. Yeah, That's what I always wanted. I always wanted to just be like, oh, look, there's Kay over there, there's Steven, there's Scroob, like they're doing their thing and Oh, there, I'm in that room. Oh, yeah, he belongs there. And like, it's football punditry. Oh, he belongs there. Like, or political punditry. Like, I always wanted to just be someone who like, I just like going to cool parties. No, I just want to be someone that like belongs. <laughs> but just, it's the craft, right? Like, I really, it's always about the work Yeah, for me. And it takes a long, you know how it is. Yeah. You know, you're an example of that. Like, I mean, look at commercial, no commercial breaks. Yeah. Still some of your best, you know, like, obviously, like, you've made great work in every field you've been in. Even that though, even the early stuff, like you look back yeah. at that and go, my God, when I was, you know, you're selling CDs of your own at gigs, touring in a camper van. Like we know we've all done that. Like, yeah, yeah. We've all, what's that, what's that MF, shout out to the late great MF Doom. What's that quote? Even when it's rotten, you got to the hard years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doom yeah. knew, Doom, yeah, he knew. Unless, I mean, let's 
obviously we're going to jump around an awful lot in this. Um, I should mention just before we, we we get into this, this, you may be unaware that you're kind of one of the people most responsible for this podcast existing. Because, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. because a year or so before the, the podcast existed, I asked to meet up and interview you. And it was for a project I was working on that some elements I felt you were far more of an expert in than I. And I've recorded it and I've never released it. It's never been for anything other than my own research. But that was my first kind of realisation that we don't really get into deep conversations with our casual friends, if you know what I mean. Mm, So the, the fact that we had microphones in front of us and I had specific things I wanted to learn meant I learned more about you in that two-hour conversation than I had in the four or five years we'd known each other up to that point. So oh, it, it really yeah. kind of was an eye-opener for me to go, I want to have more long-form conversation. And you'll see from the podcast, the first 20 or 30 people are all people I know quite well. Yes, of course, you know, listen, no, 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 it's brilliant. Do you know yeah. what I mean? But I'd never, I'd, but, but I'd never sat down with and gone, so what was your upbringing like? And what was, was this and that? And that was that all came from a conversation I said that we had in a pub somewhere with a little microphone on the table. And that, um, yeah, of course, yeah, it yeah, kicked yeah. things off. But, 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 but as I said, I want to jump about, as, as you mentioned those early days. And yeah, of course. I'm not sure if, I'm sure I must have told the story on here before, but I remember when we first kind of came across each other properly. The first time we didn't meet, I attended a a poetry slam at Rada. I think it yes. was Rada. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, you yeah. you were performing. I didn't even get, get a chance to get up or do anything, but I remember seeing you in your a handful of others and being like, "Oh man, this is this is good. There's some good people here. I'm feeling this." But I remember the first time we properly crossed paths was uh, I believe it was a Tung Fu slam. I may be remembering that wrong, but I think it was Tung Fu. It was above a it was above a pub in Islington, and it was in two halves. So. In the first half, Joshua Edenhan had got up, and you've got ten minutes. He did yeah. really good. I was like, he's good. He's competition. And then I, I think in my memory, I ended the first half. And for anyone who's, who's familiar with my work, will, will know some of these pieces. But at this point, they were all kind of brand new. So in my ten minutes, I did angles, thou shalt always kill, and letter from God to man. Right. Yeah. And it went down well. It was one of the first like slams I'd done and I was like this has gone well and in the in the interval there was a lot of rumblings that it was like all right I might be in the lead here I might be in a in with a chance of winning then the second half came up Inua got up and did his thing and I thought that was amazing but I don't think Inua's really got a slam style do you know what I mean he's like most deaf rather than the Mac Lethal do you know what I mean he's Nas he's like he's like he's like he's like Chekhov he's like the Chekhov of poetry that guy's brain is like five levels it's like inception there's like always four or five extra levels in that guy's brain unbelievable that means it's not going to have necessarily slam style impact so i I was thinking right i'm still i'm still doing good and then the last person of the night i think was you and you got up and did one 10 minute piece called cooper chimbonda that finished like on the the button of the 10 minutes on the dot and i thought all right it's over and you rightfully won um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was a night of going, right, this is, I'd got up there and thought I'll do these hits and you'd go up there and gone, oh no, I've got a complete 
story from beginning to end that's going to, similar to what you were saying about the podcast, it's not yeah. going to feel like 10 minutes. It's going to feel like w- one piece that's taken you on this, yeah, huge journey. So, so that's my first memory of being really, man, I need to know this guy. That's funny because I, mem- I remember that too. And I, I, I remember, th- I, mem- I think I came to you at half time and said, that's the best 10 minute poetry set I've ever seen. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, no, no. What I meant, I meant it was the best. I was, it's, and I was, I was right because if I look at like what those things went on to do, they became cornerstones of your debut album. Yeah. yeah like yeah. Well, a few months later, I was at 07. Uh, Thou Shall Always Kill obviously got, you know, shout out to Dan the Sack. He put the incredible beat to that. And, it just went, you know, stratospheric. Yeah. And that, that was was the best 10-minute set. And you went and did one again at um, One Taste. You performed again at One Taste, I think, just when your career was going thermonuclear. And again, that was, that's one probably the top, that's a top five set. Because a lot of people then had heard like, ah, oh, this Scroobius guy, like, what's he like? What's he like? And I'm like, nah, they're like, oh, no. I was like, no, no, no. Like, this guy's gonna, <laughs> he's gonna heat things up. And it was, so, because performing back then, and shout out also to Angela Cleland, who was in the final then, who's now gone on to become you know, a remarkable novelist. Angela, yeah. just a great wordsmith. What was funny about um, that whole thing was everyone who performed that night, and I think I think Joshua did a, a poem called Cupid. Yes, yes. Yeah, that right. was the first time I'd heard. And that was, again, it's the beauty of realising that these were the first yeah. times anyone had heard a lot of these. So yeah, right, Cupid, right, right. And, these, and, yeah. the, and the, all these were all, yeah, they became the classics in that scene. And I think uh, it was an amazing moment in time because... Everyone was about the craft. I remember sort of coming off stage and just going, everyone's just making work. Everyone's just like making, yeah. everyone really, really cares about, you know, you look at the, the late great MF Doom has just passed. He took so much care over every syllable yeah. and it was so clear. And you, 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 you were really a funny one because you had the complete package. And I know I mentioned you and Doom in the same voice, but it's because you both understood the full theater. Like Doom said, I'm an author right? Yeah. He wasn't a rapper. He was an author. You're not, you were not a poet. You were an author. You yeah. orchestrated an atmosphere. You built something that was so elaborate and powerful that it was theatre before most people were doing theatre. Oh, oh, it's it's, yeah. it's a really in, interesting point because you may remember from, from back in those days, not once of all the gigs that we did together, not once did I get up and go, here's this new piece I'm working on or whatever, as was so common. If it was getting done, I'd practised it a million times in my room and it was yeah even though it was the first time it was going to feel like it's only the first time for you everyone else knows this piece already this is this is already established you know oh my gosh do you know how i practiced that that 10 minute poem just so you know the yeah. way i practiced it was i said what i used at that point i was living in uh croydon shout out to sydney road just off grenaby avenue i was living in east croydon and the way i learned that poem i'd walk home at night and begin the poem from the platform at east croydon station and if I messed up a single syllable, I'd stop where I was standing in the street and start again. And I wow. wouldn't let myself get home until I'd done the poem perfectly. So at one point I'm reciting the poem and I'm on my doorstep in East Croydon. It's a 10 minute walk home. And I messed up one syllable right at the end. I stopped on my doorstep. I stopped four feet from my front door and started the poem again. Amazing. That's why I knew, that's why I knew it so well. I knew that it fitted exactly within 10 minutes if I did it. And my style, obviously you had them, you, you entered completely formed. And my thing was... I want to go with each poem as quickly from conversational style. So talking to you now into the poem. As qu- so people don't realise yeah. I'm reciting it until 20 seconds in. Yeah, yeah. So it's exactly that. And it's so funny to talk to you about craft because we, you know, we both have public personas, but it's about the work in the end, isn't it? I, I, oh. I, I love that. And that's fascinating because, again, it was a big thing at that point that 
a lot of poets would have a 10 minute introduction for a two minute poem. Yeah, so, so and yeah. again, you were the master of it as exactly as, as you're saying, it's like, Oh, this guy's up introducing and then, Oh, hang on. We're in it. He's, he's, in it. he's yeah, not let yeah. us know we're in it. We're in it. And then yeah. that's, that's so, it's such a powerful approach and technique. Cause it's not, it's not the kind of here we are casual. And now the performance is going to begin and yeah. scene kind of thing. It's the opposite of that. It's, the performance begun and you didn't know. Yeah, because it set the tone. We talk about set the tone again. Yeah, yeah. When you got up and did your piece, I I found myself thinking, well, was our conversation in the interval part of the, has this whole night been part of the performance? Is this, right, has right, Musa right, planned yeah. all of this? Has he had control over, <laughs> over all of this? So yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, that piece was a powerful piece because it was about, and as so much of your work, it was, You'd write fiction, and again, it's what I would have always been a fan of myself. You'd write fiction that's heavily drawn from your own yes. experiences and, and yeah. your own life. Did that make you feel more comfortable being more honest as such? Yeah, because think, it's a yeah. character called Cooper Chimbonda rather than the Musa Rockwonga. Again, yeah, exactly. there's some similarities there. But again, yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah. it allows you to be so bare and open. And I, again, yeah. I remember being at gigs with you with members of your family in the crowd who hadn't heard yeah. that piece before or other pieces before. Of and course, again, yeah, yeah. I'd imagine it gives you that slight comfort to go, right. I think also the thing about using that approach that I use is that um, the reason why my work is so vulnerable is very deliberate. It's because confession inspires confession. If you yeah. give something of yourself and your work, people come up, up to you afterwards and they're like, and they just tell you, like one person, uh, shout out to the great Niall Spooner Harvey, fantastic poet who's yes. now based, I think, in the US. Shout out to Niall. Um, we were talk. I did this poem, the same one you mentioned, and it's about coming out, realizing my sexuality, identify, I suppose, as, I suppose bisexual, really. And I, it's about coming out. And Niall came up to me afterwards and he was like, oh, this is what my upbringing was like. This is what my mum went through to bring me up. I just thought I should tell you that because you gave something, so I should give you something. And Amazing. that's what it's about. Yeah, so then I realised, oh, there's a point to this. And even the thing about, I mean, I don't mind being vulnerable on stage, because for me, human suffering, human struggle is just what we all go through. We've all been through something. So what to me is important is not necessarily the, the way you end up, it's, it's the journey, right? Yeah. And if you share a journey, other people share a journey. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, also there's something about doing it that way. If you make it, mostly truthful but partly fictional then it becomes universal yeah then it becomes something that other people can go away and be like oh i can relate to aspects of that if that yeah. makes sense yeah. yeah completely completely i think there is is something really powerful about just changing the name of the lead yes. protagonist or giving them a name rather yes. than i i did this i did that cooper yes. chimonda did this and cooper chimonda felt that allows yes. us to go right i can feel this rather than oh it's their story it's personal I'm di I'm slightly distanced from it. Absolutely. And, you know, Chimbonda is funny because he was a footballer for, uh, I think, Spurs at the time. So I thought yeah. there's a name people will know anyway as a yeah. bit of a nod to them. But also fictionalising things also protects those you love. So I sent the poem uh, to my ex-girlfriend who, you know, is still a very good friend. I sent it to her and her reaction was the best of all. She was like, I'm speechless. Like, right. in terms of a tribute, she was like, I don't think she'd ever seen me. I'd never written about just what she meant to me. So for her, almost, it was like the, the poem was like an audience of one. And it was like, this is the person who taught me how to love. 
Yeah. She taught me how to love. Like if anyone that I love, anything that goes on in my life that goes well, like it's her that did that. I owe that to her. That's my tribute to her. Amazing. Well, speaking of tributes and and vulnerability on stage, I'd like to talk about your kind of your early life again through the medium of, of, of your work. There's, if people go on YouTube and search King's Wheel Passport, there's a live performance that I was in the crowd for yeah. and I was I had tears running down my face and you had tears running down your face at, at, at points in the performance. Um, it's a piece about your dad. So That's can you right. kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. tell me a little bit about your dad? Yeah, so, so yeah, some quick background on, on me and my dad. So I... Grew up just outside London in the borough of Hillingdon. My parents are Ugandan. They fled the the regime of Idi Amin in the mid-1970s, came to the UK to settle. They had me and a few other siblings of mine. And my dad was one of the first black consultant surgeons in the UK, pediatric surgeon at Hillingdon Hospital. And he went back, having fled as a refugee, he went back to fight in the resistance, I suppose, against the person who's now the president of Uganda, uh, Yari Museveni. And that's a bit like someone leaving Syria as a refugee, then going back to fight. Like you don't, it's not a thing that most people do. Most refugees don't back and do that. And I'm not judging those who don't because it's an extraordinary sacrifice to make. And he paid for it with his own life. So my dad died. um, He was killed in the war in 1983 when I was four years old. And when he was killed, I kind of... um, I came to a place where I, I, my first memory of my dad is basically his coffin in the living room. Wow. And the second memory is basically burying him in this village, like up in the north of Uganda, in his home village. And so this poem, Passport, that I recited that night, I recited with the same emotion I felt. It was basically, it was kind of like, the poem is like a detective story. Yeah. I imagine if all you have of your dad is his passport. And by then, the only possession of his I have left, I had three possessions of his, I had his jacket, which I wore for years, but then got ruined by the rain. I had a tie of his, which I lost, and I have his passport, which is with me now. It's basically, my dad's passport is two metres to my right. Well, one metre to right. It's right here on my desk. And I thought, the story basically is like, imagine if all you had of your your father was his passport, what clues could you derive from his life? Yeah. And I I think it's still the best poem I've ever written. Yeah. It's astounding. I share it regularly you, on Father's Day and things like that because I really think oh, it's such you. a powerful piece on on people who are, st- are struggling on a, a day like that who don't have their parent because it is a sad piece, but it's also a celebration. Like the yeah. the smile yeah. on your face for the and 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 until and after the tears come is so yeah. warm and genuine that you're 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 getting to tell people about your father. Yes. You're getting to, Absolutely, yeah. to, to tell people about the man that you didn't really get to know that much, but yeah. you've got to learn about him and you're getting the opportunity to let other people learn about him. And yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for doing that because it means um, that I, I was, I was in, I was in uh, Uganda recently and I was talking to one of my mum's friends and my, one of my mum who knew my dad really well. So they were like, they grew up together and everything. And he was talking about my career as a writer and like, Oh, look, the son of Wilson, the son of Wilson, my dad was called Wilson. I see what he's doing with his writing. And he said, you know, he's doing really well. And then he gave the ultimate compliment, which is sounds like a kind of like quite cheesy proverb, but it's quite a powerful thing to say. He said, the son of an elephant remains an elephant. Wow. Which I was just like, that is the ultimate, ultimate compliment. Yeah. Um, 
because that that guy, you know, he's seen a lot of things. He's seen a lot of things in Uganda. He's like, yeah, no, like that guy's legit. He's doing the work, which meant so much. I think. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah, I I think it's a wonderful thing. I think I've talked about it a fair bit on here, but I I I was really glad to get to a point where death or anniversary of death was about celebration rather than the mourning. I've I've said it numerous times. April 25th is my favourite day of the year because when we were all all 21, I lost a dear, dear friend of mine on his birthday on April 25th. And um, it's become a celebration day. You know, I always, I go around to his parents with a few other friends and we have a barbecue. This year we did it over Zoom. Um, Amazing. And we... Everyone, as you were saying there, it's that moment. It's the one day I know I'm going to hear stories about him. Do you know what I mean, I, yeah. I might, I might every other day of the year, but that's the one day that I know we're going to hear stories. And often, like from his his, da- his dad, it's the same stories. It's going yeah. to be the same stories about him being a teacher and when they're at school and him going on rugby trips. But man, I just bathe in those stories on on that day each year, and I think it's not something that you can have control over necessarily over when those anniversaries become a celebration, but being aware that they will at some point is a beautiful thing. If you've lost someone, you know, in, of course. in, in, in recent times, being aware that that date that doesn't have to be something that you dread or bury your head or hide from. It can be something that you go and it's almost here. It's bigger than yeah, Christmas but, to me, you know? And it keeps, no, that's really important because, you know, stories, um, you look at Neil Gaiman's American Gods. If you stop worshipping the gods, they lose their power. Yeah. And so, the, you know, you need to keep stories alive. Even gods need you to keep stories alive for them. And I think the more you celebrate people, they have a spiritual resonance. They're still here with us. And I think, so you kind of speaking someone's name once a year for an entire day, dedicating a day to someone once a year, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's more than 99% of people get that ever lived on this earth. That's incredible. It's incredibly powerful. It's also been amusing as as the years go on because we're all getting more old and haggard and he gets yeah, to remain uh, 21. Uh, he gets to yeah, remain this, yes. this beautiful memory of this wonderful uh, man uh, and we're all like, yeah, I, I put my back out this year. That's been one of the big stories. And, and all sorts yeah, of no, stuff we're, like a, we're a lot more, more grey since the last time, that's for sure. So, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so he gets immortalised in that way. Well, I mean, another key part of your upbringing, I, I want to talk about in the end it was all about love because... Um, oh, thank you. I've started it and I've said on this podcast numerous times, my favourite ever book is the book of Disquiet by Fernando Pessoa. And it has a feel of that in that it's jumping through from mediums and styles and it's kind of got this almost broken up narrative from the narrator. Um, But we'll get to that because you've got, it it feels relevant that you've got another book coming out called One of Them, yeah, and we've talked about that that early point of your, of your of your upbringing. But one of the fascinating things, can we talk about Eton and all of that yeah. kind of thing? Because it's 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 a wonderful part of what's made you the person you are. Even though it's a place that I think you'll agree can be quite dangerous and poisonous. Yeah, well, I think this is yeah. So um, I should explain that. So I went to Eton uh, College, which is most people, well, no, not everyone knows. A lot of people, it's, it's an English boarding school because obviously you've got like a huge listenership like internationally. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. for those who don't know, it's an English boarding school, you know, a school where you basically like, you know, you, like you have a dormitory. Instead of going home every day, you, you board there for like five years. You stay there for five years, eat, sleep, work there. 
I was there for five years, and that's obviously where uh, Boris Johnson went to school and David yeah. Cameron, who were two of the last three British prime ministers. And so I recently wrote a book, a memoir about my five years there, because I was trying to look back in time. I wasn't there at the same time as them because they were like a generation older than me. They're like sort of mid fifties, but I was there with people who are now prominent politicians, some of whom worked for, for them, for either one or two of those people. So I wanted to go back in time to like the early nineties and be like all this stuff that we see now with the, with the UK leaving the, the European union and with the government like having a hard right stance in some cases, to be honest, a far right stance on some issues, if I'm honest, where did that come from? Like, what role did the environment I was growing up in, that elite atmosphere, what role did that play? And, you know, it was a mostly at that point, I think there's, there's a lot more black boys there now. It's an all-male school, but um, all boys boarding school. But at that time, there were only like a couple of black guys there. I think there's now about sort of 20, 30, not still not that many, I'm not sure. But but certainly back then, it was a strange environment. It was amazing education, don't get me wrong. It was incredible. But there was a whole other aspect to the kind of class system that I thought I needed to explore in this book and navigate. So that book's coming out in April, I think. Shout out to Unbound yeah. Publishers, who very kindly worked with me on that project. Katie, Rachel, and Deandra did a great job on that in particular, getting that out there. My, my agent, uh, Abby Fellows, as well. But yeah, so working on that was really, you know, we're both poets, right? You know, we're always going to be poets, even though we're doing podcasts and whatever now. Like yeah. that vulnerability, like writing that book is the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. I can the imagine. hardest, because it was so personal. It was like going back over school reports from like 25 years ago and looking looking at a 13-year-old boy through 40-year-old eyes, it's you're not very forgiving, actually. Yeah. You're yeah. not very forgiving. Wow. Yeah, so it was a really powerful thing to write. Like um, when I finished writing it, sounds dramatic to say it, but when I finished writing it, I just like passed out for like two, three hours. Yeah. I was emotionally exhausted. And I got sent the edits for the second, I sent the second draft in, and I felt a bit sick. I was like, please, please, please. I hope this book is good enough because if it's not, I don't know if I've got anything more to give. Yeah. I genuinely was wow. like, I'm not sure I can get, yeah, yeah. It yeah. pushed me to the, ver- it was like scraping out the bone marrow actually by the it's, end. It's an interesting one. Cause I think with all things, when you're in the moment of them, you, yeah. you're riding the wave. You're, yeah. you, you're making your choices in the moment and doing what you, you feel is right. So to then go back and analyze any of those, those moments is, is mind blowing. I always remember being really inspired by the fact that you chose poetry. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because again, there were, you, you went to a very good school and had v- very good opportunities. And there was things that I remember talking to you about the career path you were going down. And it's that kind of career path that again, if you've been to a school like that, there will be options to just, if you can leave your conscience at the door, maybe, or your, or, or your true desires at the door, there will be financial gain available. And I remember talking to you and you kind of saying, look, one day I was going down a particular route career-wise and I was like, I'm a poet. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not this. I'm not this. I'm not this person. I need to to walk away from the potential r- riches that come with that as such and and, and pursue my my passion. Absolutely. And the thing, the thing is this, I like there are a lot of people like, and shout out to a lot of my close friends who I was at law school with, I'm a qualified lawyer. So I, I qualified in the city and then worked there for a little bit, not a long time. The plan was always to write in my spare time and be a lawyer in my main time, but it just wasn't in me to work in that world. And the thing is this, it's like, there are some people I know, some of my close friends whose skill set and whose passion is rewarded by a capitalist system. So 
I've got some friends who are very gifted with numbers. They work in derivatives. They've made millions. That's what works for them, right? And they they enjoy that. That's great. And I'm not even like good for them, to be honest. My whole thing was there are stories I have to tell. There's work I've got to make and put out there. So I kind of left that world. I was uh, 25 years old, I think. And I just sort of handed in my notice one one Monday morning. And my, my secretaries at work were horrified. My PAs were horrified. Uh, my supervisor was like, I think he was nervous. Like, did we annoy this guy? I was like, no, I just got to do my thing. So I just left. That was it. I was done. And they were like, oh my God, all that hard work for nothing. Um, I went and got a job temping at the home office in Croydon and they actually interviewed me. They saw my CV and I went for a job, uh, which was going to be paid eight pounds an hour. And the guy actually, John Froshtega, bless him, John's now retired, but he got me into the office and you never get interviewed for a temp job. I mean, who does that? They basically like take us. He couldn't believe it. He was like, what is someone with this CV doing coming and working here? And I was like, well, first of all, it's money. I'm not too proud for it. It's money. It's paying bills. Yeah. And first, it's good enough for those people. So why is it good enough for me? Yeah. And the second I said, was, he, goes, he said, do you have any ambition? He said, and I said, I'm probably the most ambitious person you've ever met. I said, like what I want to do with my career, I'm probably the most ambitious person, but the path I'm taking is, is long. Yeah. It's really, really long. Like it's not going to be an easy thing. And that was when I was 25 years old and I'm 16, uh, 16 years later 41 now. And I spoke to my then girlfriend, well, my girlfriend, sorry, uni. She said to me, Musa, you're probably the most impatient person I've ever met. And my career has been many, many things, but has not been fast. Yeah. The ascent has not been fast. No, no one can say that. Well, that's, again, it's, it's such a rare thing in, in, in modern times. I always, I can't remember where I was talking about it recently. I don't know if it was on the podcast or not, but things like, I'm, I'm sure it was, Socrates who used to have a thing when he would lecture and teach that you you couldn't ask a question for the first I think four years or three years or something um because you had to learn first and then once you've learned you can ask a question and I think it's such a different thing in our society it's what excites me about this kind of journey I'm on with acting and I'll get people all the time saying I mean it's good that you've got a role here and there but come back to music it, it's like well no i'm i'm in this for the long haul like there's stuff course, yeah. that's been going on behind the scenes that no one knows about that's that's all developing in the right direction but again it's exactly that it's not like it's the opposite of poetry in that way that you present your piece and you get your instant reaction it's immediate like, like, yes. like poetry yeah. live has that immediacy you get to know if it's good or bad immediately and yeah. move on um whereas things like acting things like writing and all sorts of other areas. It's like, right, no, you need to get that out of your head. This whole idea of this immediate, we need to know immediately, has it paid off? Has it worked? It's like, I'll know in 20 years if it was a good choice or a bad choice. Oh my goodness. It's so funny you mentioned that, like the best choices ever made were the long-term choices. Like doing a law degree, I made that choice when I was 16, even though English was my best subject. Didn't do English at A-level, didn't do English at uni. I was like, a law degree is the best investment for me at this point because I can take it anywhere. Like, if I did an English degree, like, it would have been so much more fun, I think. But a law degree is universally respected, as is a law qualification. Yeah. So the long-term bet was, you do that and people won't ever turn their noses up at you. Yeah. They can't because it's, it's, it's a thing they kind of have to respect. Yeah, yeah. And the same with doing German. Um, I studied German for my A-level, even though I, you know, I hadn't lived in Germany for years and it was a long-term bet. I was like, if I do French and German, at some point I might need those in Europe because they're the main business languages. Yeah. 
And lo and behold, when I was considering where to move and I was 34 years old, I was like, I've got German. How many people can come to Germany with already German in the tank to like a almost university level? So I was like, I'll do that. And all the long-term bets, like even poems of mine, like poems like there's a poem I did with climate change called The Creep, a poem about London called Heavyweight. Like these poems, I did them at the time and they got a good response, but not beyond the poetry scene. And then I'm not even kidding you, like 10 years later, people are discovering this work yeah. and turning it into theatre pieces, reading like, so the 10th anniversary of the July bombings, LBC, like James O'Brien, they had it and they, re- they, they actually played the entire recording on LBC radio. Of Heavyweight. To mark... Yeah, to mark yeah. the 10th anniversary of the London yeah. bombings. They were like, this poem is based about resistance. Again, another one on YouTube. Go and watch it on YouTube. It's amazing. And it's, it's, I remember when I watched it, it had this amazing t- technology where you can kind of move the camera yeah. around and look around yourself by moving your phone. It's, a, it's astounding. It's a funny story. Yeah, funny story that. So we did that piece. Uh, shout out to Richard Knuckles. We did that piece together. And the technology on that, basically, we did that like super early in, in the in, in the technology's life. And what happened actually, he said that they would have this thing a few months because advertising, everyone rips off everyone. Yeah. And he said that he would receive pictures for his agency using that as a template. Wow. Yeah, this would happen a lot to me. There were like <laughs> poems. Yeah, there, 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 were, there were a lot of things that would happen in London at the time where it was like, a lot of it was just too early. Yeah. And it's so weird because for the first time in my career as a writer, I feel like I'm... I've arrived exactly the right time. Yeah. Like so many things I was like too early or too late. Yeah. Like even, even the poetry scene, I was like, my mate was like, oh, like Musa, like two years after you left, people are being paid this and that for this. And that's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's all in the scene. I was like, yeah, but by then I was gone. And you know how it is when you, once you've left poetry, you're gone, right? Yeah. I'm still a poet, but it's not my main passion or focus or directions. Other things I want to do long form stuff. There's stuff, of course, that we're still working on that we can't talk about because it's not out, but it's weird. People go, oh my God, come back to this. It's like really thriving. I was like, I'm not interested. It's time is done. Like I will never want to go back to 07 because that was a beautiful period in my life, but it's done. It's like going back to an old relationship. Yeah. You know, like it's almost like, what am I still, what are we both still doing here? We're not, we're not right for each other anymore. You see, the, and, and, and those are the things that I think are beautiful to look back on. Of course. Yeah. And if, if you can look back with true comfort and not with, with, with pining for it, things like, when we did our Pip versus Pip gig, that was, oh my God, that was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Because you had a group called Poem in Between People that was you, Joshua, in your Ed Sheeran yeah. was in there at one point. Oh, yeah. He came Jody and Bickley. Shut up, yeah. Shut up to him. Yeah. Like so many good people in there. And we decided because Poem in Between People was abbreviated to Pip that we should do a yeah. Pip versus Pip thing. And it was in this, yeah. in this, this pub, this pub the in Macbeth, the Macbeth and Hoxton. The Macbeth, Macbeth in Hoxton. That's right. And it was just rammed to the rafters and it wasn't what anyone would imagine a poetry gig to be because it was this kind of back and forth of Josh will get up and do a thing and then I'd think right so what can I do in response I had Ollie then known as the six foot two inch pianist with me so we'd do bits that we had piano with beatboxing and we'd try and 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 clash in that way with absolute love and, and and friendship but go right well what have they bought okay like what have I got because all of us at that point had had back catalogues. We did, yeah. That was wild. It was that exciting thing to know that if J- 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 Josh did something that went in a certain direction, I'd be like, I know which piece would should come after that. Or if Inua did something really soft and introspective, yes, I'd be like, of course, I need yeah. to match that. I need to go here. And it, yeah, 
things it was like unbelievable that to look back on. And the, uh, yeah, shout out to Philip Levine of Lazy Gramophone, who Damn basically right. like, curated curated the entire show. Still in touch with Phil. He's doing very well at the moment. Um, and that world is funny because Phil was like, oh, I wish we'd recorded that. But then again, there's almost a joy in not having it because I think even if you had that recorded, agreed. you couldn't capture that. You couldn't capture that. No. That moment, that energy, that electricity. And everyone remembers it. The memories and almost, I think, if, thing, if a thing is recorded, sometimes it is not lived fully. Yeah. You know, you listen yeah. to those like early, like grunge records, you listen to the rawness, like all of the energy in those records went into the recordings. And I'm a massive grunge fan from back in the day and all of that. Like Pearl Jam, you can hear yeah. every bit of intensity went into the record. And you're an actor, right? Yeah. You know how it is. Every bit of intensity comes out of the scene. There's days you've come back to, I'm sure there's days you've come back to a hotel room at 4 p.m. when you're down for the day, but you don't do anything the rest of the day because you gave so much. 100%. 100%. You know, you know those ones. To... You know those ones. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. And, the beauty of making the work, and we come back to making the work again, is if you devote yourself to the work, the work will speak. Like there's no, it's almost like that thing in science of the conservation of energy. Energy can't be created or destroyed, right? Only, mm-hmm. it only like changes changes form. And you put all yourself into some work and Pit versus Pit was like that. Everyone gave everything to every performance. And that's why that night is like, oh my God, I got got chills remembering it because yeah. we were like this was this was also the kind of like an origin story for all of us because you were there i was there ed sheeran came into pip uh after that and then went out again of course went stratospheric shout out to him he's yeah. doing very well doing really well polar k tempest everyone came through and that was the one taste world that era like and jamie Woon, honestly 0607 there was such a creative sweet spot in london yeah and it's hard to express just what came out of that but it was all of it it was all of it and uh, uh, and the influence as well. Like, Paul is a yeah. perfect example of that. The amount of people he influenced oh going forward. His his time was r- relatively sh- short-lived p- before he moved on to do other things. But the, yeah. the, the imprint was was huge. But anyway, I, we, we, I mean, we talked about looking like – in, in in your school days as such, that when you're in it and you're riding the wave, it's hard to really take things in. And when you're yeah, outside yeah. of it, it's different. I found that recently while I'm filming in, in Vancouver. It's been really eye-opening looking at England because yes. I've seen levels of selfishness and insolence and just, just, just general st- that stuff that's made me quite sad. Um, yes. And I think I was always aware of it, but it's been more eye-opening to see it from the outside, to see it from a country that t- takes a pandemic more seriously, that seems to care about everyone rather than the individual more. Um, you moved to Germany a good few years back, so you've got yeah. to witness the UK's journey through Brexit, pandemics, yeah. all of yeah. these things. How's that been? Because it's been interesting. I've said before that when I have an opinion on something, again, I think it was the first time I mentioned you on the podcast, if I have an yeah. opinion on something, I look to see if my brother or you have posted anything on that. And if it conflicts mine, it's when I go, right, I need to do some research. And <laughs> we won't necessarily agree, but I know yeah, of course. with you and my, my brother that your opinion will have been a yeah. well-read and well-researched. And it won't just have been a, I've seen a headline somewhere, here's my view, oh, or you. someone I like. So there's been points during everything that's been going on, whether it be Brexit, whether it be last year's surge in Black Lives Matter action, there's been points that you've been 
angry on yeah, social yeah. media, which yeah. which was a new thing to me with you because you've always been such a positive and and, and yeah. uplifting person. But there's been understandable anger over the last few years. Yeah, how's that been? How's 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 it yeah. been? Where you are looking in? Yeah, exactly. That's a great question. So where it started. So um, look, I never thought I would leave the UK. Yeah. Like, it was really heartbreaking. People have to understand this. It, when I criticised the UK, it, it came and it comes from a place of love. Grew up there, um, parents came there as refugees and really bonded with the country. Like, you know, 92 Olympics, all that multi, you know, multiracial group of athletes winning all those, yeah. all those gold medals in 92, the Barcelona Olympics, probably the high point in my relationship with the country, with the UK. And, you know, I went to Brazil for the World Cup because I also write about football um, I've been a pundit, not a pundit, commentator, writer, journalist, football journalist for several years now. It's a different strand of my work. And I was in Brazil for a month during the World Cup of 2014, which of course is, you know, a World Cup in Rio. What more can you say? It's incredible. <laughs> but I was reading the English tabloid press and I, I had never been outside the UK for that length of time. The month, a month was the longest I've been outside the UK. And every day, of course, you're reading the press. And if all you're seeing from the UK is just, you see the press coming out. And I said to my mum, I just said, they hate immigrants so much there. Like, I know they hate us, but they really hate us. It's like it's like something they wouldn't scrape off their shoe. They really despise us, like the difference. And I just said to my mum, I said, I can't grow old in that country. I know that other countries aren't perfect. Other countries have got issues with race as well. But I just can't give my entire life to a country that hates immigrants that much. I just can't do it. I'll go somewhere else a few years. I just So I decided then and there to move to Germany. So I basically came back to Essex, packed up my stuff, and within two months of that revelation, of my personal revelation that I just couldn't live anymore, I was in Germany. And I've been wow. here for the last six years. And watching from abroad, watching Brexit from abroad, I think that Brexit is actually an English phenomenon as opposed to a British one. Yeah. Because we know that Scotland was keen to remain in the yeah. EU by yeah. majority. It's an English phenomenon. I think we can tie Brexit to also the mask thing because, you know, this whole attitude towards wearing masks, and in the UK and England specifically, a lot of people just aren't wearing masks. From the sounds of it, a lot of people are wearing yeah. masks. Places are packed. Can I be honest with you? It's a bit like that same energy that a lot of those people that go on stag do's, you know, in Europe, they go on stag do's and it's like, you know, we're in a city. They kind of like, you know, in a good natured way, but there's a bit of a, it's a bit threatening. It's kind of like, you know, some of it is lads on tour, yeah, but some of it is also a bit like we're going to kind of impose ourselves, whether yeah. you like it or not. Completely. And I think that the mask, if I'm honest with you, Pip, I think the mask is the first time a lot of these people have ever had anyone said no to them. It's the first time a lot of these people have ever faced anything that resembles a border. Because you can take a British passport and get off a plane in almost any country in the world and be welcomed. Like a British passport is like, wow, a British guy, British citizen, particularly British man. Yeah. And then an Englishman is, is you know, it's like being English is like a visa to anywhere. And I think that wearing a mask is the first time people have felt restrictions. Yeah. And that's why a lot of them are just freaking out. And it's, it's, it's been embarrassing because it just shows such fragility, yes, which yes. from people who, who, who will claim to be this, you know, England r- rules the waves and all this kind of thing. And it's like, well, it's not that much of a discomfort. It's not, it's not, but it is, but it's not, but it is. Yeah. I, I, I posted a picture the other day of, and I had a mask on. It was on a story, actually. I had a mask on and I was in the woods or something and someone was like, mm. You're fucking wearing a mask. You're outside. All this and all that. And I just reply back, going, "It's cold. 
It's cold, yeah. Right, it's, it's cold. cold. Yeah, yeah. It was more. It was, uh, it's it's more comfortable to wear the mask than to not wear the mask in this situation. But there was such an uh, uh, instant outrage, as if it's a political that 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 statement. When other countries have said it was amazing, meaning before I came to Canada, hearing them say we've not had a big issue with masks because we wear scarves a lot. It's yeah, not, it's right, no di- right, yeah. Di- different. It's not. It's not this big imposition on my freedom. What you're actually s- s- saying is, I can't handle the mildest of discomforts. Is what yes. actually is being said here. It's not this. I need my freedom. I need my independence. It's saying, this is sl- This is as you say. This is the first time someone's asked me to do something I don't want to do, and I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. Well, discomforts for other because yeah, discomforts for other people. Discomforts yeah. for other people. That's the thing. You realise it's almost a kind of psychodrama playing out in in England specifically, where you know all the things that matter so much to a certain segment of English person. And I say a certain segment. I'm not saying it's every English person. I'm not saying that. It's like these obsessions. Yeah, these obsessions with the war. Yeah. Again, I mean, I I I, I want to back that up there briefly, as yeah. I've talked about this, and a friend of mine. Um, Stu, who you've met a few times actually, who, who, who works yeah. in a in an HMV, he was saying not had a problem at all with masks. Like everyone is happy to wear masks. So, so is there is that weird mix? It depends on where you are in the UK. And again, we do have a habit on social media of of highlighting the the negative. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not generalising. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I've personally seen as well. It's something that in yeah. when I've been in Stamford, it's something I've been in shops and seeing people arguing and refusing to wear masks. So I know it may not be everyone, but it's also not a fiction. It's it's a reality as well. It's a, but yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, you know what it is? And I, I would say this specifically, it's a certain strand of English person. Mm. I, I'm not sure what percentage it is, but it's there. It's a sizable, a sizable percentage. I'm not sure whatever percentage is, but sizable. And there's this also this thing of like, you know, the, the kind of like the nostalgia of, you know, the Germans are this, the Germans are that. Look, can I be honest with you? I've been in Germany for six years no one talks about the England-Germany football rivalry here. Nobody yeah. cares. Yeah. If you want to talk about a football rivalry, it's Holland-Germany. That's what gets them wound up, right? Yeah. That's the thing. That's the one. That's the needle. England-Germany, people look baffled. It makes me think of Millwall. All the teams yes. that are our big rivals, and we know that for most of them, we're not their big rival. <laughs> no, but then, but then this is weird. There's something else going on. Which is... but, but, but they're our rival. They're our big, they're our enemy. And the, th- the things that the UK clings to, like, you know, we all have our grudges and our rivals and it's, it's fun to an extent and it's, it's harmless. But the danger is when you start dwelling on it, like I was talking to someone and they were like, oh yeah, like, um, God, they must be laughing at us in Europe. They must be it's so humiliating. I'm like, no, it's worse than that. They're not talking about it. Mm. Honestly, my European friends, like, you know, the ones who are not English, ones who are not British, they don't talk about the UK. They don't talk about England. It's not a thing. They're not, it yeah. doesn't, um, they're concerned for us. They're like, oh, is it okay with residency? They're, but they're not like going, oh my God, the stupid Brits. We can't, they're not doing that. They're just, it's not a thing to them. They don't care, yeah. No, and it's, it's not they don't care as they don't, they don't, they want bad things to happen to the UK. They're like, it's not like, it's not an obsession for them. Yeah. They're not pointing their fingers at the UK going, that ridiculous country. And this is the tragedy of Brexit. Can I be honest with you? The tragedy of Brexit, there's a lot of people in the UK and in England specifically who hate the EU, who hate the European Union, who hate Europe. They hate Europe or whatever, and they will never realise how well regarded they were. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who never understood the opportunities because they never got to study a second language or travel. They never got to understand the fact they could have come here and studied and made a completely new life. And I know a lot of people who've come here, you know, working class people, like one guy 
came here um, from Glasgow from scratch and set up a translation business. And now he's doing so, so well. Yeah. He made an incredible life himself 22 years ago, came here and he's firmly established, fluent in German, German partner. And it's just like people like that, Scouse mate of mine came over here, unbelievable writer, one of the best chroniclers of modern Germany that you'll find anywhere, unbelievable writer. It's like these people have made lives with an ease that's not possible now. Yeah. That's what heartbreaks me, not the, econ- the economic stuff, the human yeah. stories, the romantic yeah. stories that are no longer possible. Do you think a lot of that outlook and l- lack of perception, I guess, do you think it comes from the way history is taught in the UK? Of course. The, the, the of fact course that, b- b- because again, it's, I was thinking about this, this last night with relevance to this conversation because Germany and England are great examples. Obviously, mm. you can't claim that Germany has got great history, but that history is taught. People are taught about the Nazis and the the damage yeah. and the negativity. We're not. We're told that England at one point basically ran the whole world. It's like, mm. well, who died for that to happen? How did they get yeah. to run the whole world? How did the empire happen? Who was slaughtered? And we don't really talk about the horribleness of of, yeah. of large parts of our history. Whereas in places like Germany, that is taught. It's it's acknowledged. This is what happened. Whereas we don't seem to have that. Well, no, it's fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned this because, you know, Germany obviously has a rich history and some of that history is awful and terrible. And England has a rich history. Some of that history is awful and terrible. And the partial remembrance of history and the willful forgetting of other parts, it's all deliberate. Like a lot of people don't know that it's a basic thing, but they don't realise that Anglo-Saxon is Angles and Saxons. Like they don't realise that actually if you are English – you're not a pure indigenous person. You're an Anglo-Saxon immigrant. You're part of two different races yeah. that came from mainland Europe. Yeah. People don't know that. They don't yeah. know that a lot of people. And it's not taught. And it's such a basic thing not to be told. But, you know, national myths, again, they're like footballing grudges. They're harmless to an extent. And then they become harmful. And the problem is if you gas yourself up the whole time, it's a bit, put it this way. It's like going, it's like being an athlete going, oh my goodness, I have a flawless I have a flawless health record. Like, no, you've got a snapped Achilles. No, I'm fine. There's no pain. No, you've got a snapped Achilles. No, then you, you try sprinting and then like you collapse. Yeah. And England, I think, has got a snapped Achilles and it thinks it's still an elite athlete and it's it needs rehab. Like yeah. it needs physical rehab. I think that's beautifully, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. It's, yeah, it's a bizarre thing. And it's also, there's a weird... reluctance to accept criticism or to accept that there's anything wrong and again that's a very social media era thing as well that it's 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 kind of well we can't acknowledge that we were ever wrong or there's any history of of wrong and it's like well no it's not that's how you grow as a person or as a nation is looking at all right here's what wasn't right i'm glad you mentioned social media because social media basically is a really good thing to talk about this brief moment Obviously, we owe large parts of our career to social media because it's put our work on platforms that have just taken it to huge, huge audiences. Ultimately, though, at the same time, I'm not sure that there's been a net benefit to society. I agree. Simply because, simply because the forms of confrontation social media force you to have. Let's look at Twitter, for example. If I was talking to you in the street and we were having a disagreement or an argument, right, we'd be talking face-to-face in the street. But social media now, it's like... The equivalent of me arguing with you on Twitter is like me talking to you and then me going, hey, everyone, look at Scroob. He's making a stupid point. And everyone running over going, Scroob, you're stupid. And then you're all saying, Scroob is stupid. All of a sudden, it's a mass brawl. (coughs) Social media created a completely artificial, abnormal form of communication 
that dictates how we have public discourse that has completely, it's put an emotion and a fury. Even like some of the social issues, like a lot of people would say something ignorant. It would stay in a pub and that'd be it. Yeah. Like right now, someone says something really stupid on social media about parenting, right? Recently in the old days, he would have said something ignorant about how to parent his kid. In this case, his daughter, it would have, Stayed in the pub, everyone would have been like, that's ridiculous. That's bad parenting. Sort yourself out. And that would be the end of it. A couple more pints, go home and don't be a dick. Yeah. Now that person gets screenshotted, shared. And then that covers the, that, that basically becomes the discourse. This one person sitting in his house, tweeting something out, becomes globally famous. And yeah. he's forever famous in some quarters as that idiot. Yeah. It's totally unnatural, Scroob. It's totally unnatural. And we've normalised it. Completely. And, and I think you're completely right. And it's worth highlighting. It's on both sides of it. Like, yeah. I've, I've, I've had stuff before where someone's tweeted me and I've gone to reply because I'm annoyed. But then I've realised if I reply... Everyone sees beneath it. So many yeah. more of my fan base will see it and pile on them. And that's not what this is. You know, it's bad on both sides. If people are piling on me or if my people are piling on them, neither is a good result. It's it's ugly. We don't notice at first. You don't notice, yeah. You don't. I didn't realize at first that people reply beneath and like. So I, what I tend to do is I don't mention names now because when I realized what was happening, I was like, I don't reply to people. For example, the day someone wrote something rude about me, so I write. I might write something a few hours later, not naming them, just to get it off my chest and be yeah. like, I don't like when people do this, but they don't. But no one can see who wrote to me, so they can't see what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah. And that way, it's much more powerful. I get to say and make my point. Yeah without attacking them because I don't, it's a duty of care to them, no yeah. matter who comes. I've had like horrifying abuse. I mean, I, I've been sent death threats on social media. I've been sent yeah. all sorts, all sorts of things, um, horrible abuse. And it ruins your day. Like I've, I've had a fair bit of, of that recently because of, as we touched upon f- football stuff, but again, you're right. It does. It, it, it hits through. Yeah, of course. Oh, oh yeah. Hey, can I say shout out to you as well? This, I know we're not we're not here to talk about this. I want to say this in this podcast for the record because I know that Millwall has been criticised for its stance on race issues. I went to the I went to was the Den with you. Yeah, yeah. I went to the Den with you that one time. We caught a game. Was it Colchester actually? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they had a number twenty two playing uh, Wordsworth, Anthony Wordsworth, the twenty two, yeah. very good yeah. player. Yeah, 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 good game that uh, Millwall Colchester played some very nice football back then, and um, went to that game and it was like you've done and you've done anti racism work in and around you've never ducked from that and there is a very proud tradition at Millwall of anti-racism work and I want people that hear me on this podcast to understand that I, I know that yeah there is a kind of almost a battle for the kind of not the club's soul that's dramatic but there was a kind of battle for the perception of the club yeah you and know then, when people were like oh people people said oh my god it's Millwall again I said no that's too easy because there's a lot of clubs and trust me I'm a football writer there are a lot of clubs with very racist fan bases in fact to be honest can I be honest with you yeah I would say most Big clubs I've encountered have substantial racist fan bases because it's society. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. what was tough about this particular moment on Twitter because for so many years I've defended Millwall or right, or, right. Or, or, or just w- w- literally worked with Millwall to, 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 to address the racism, not defended them, defended them when they've been unju- unjustly attacked. And been and been honest when they're not unjustly attacked. So yeah. it was tough that when I spoke up on this one, I had so many Millwall fans fuming at me and 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 furious. It's like, well, no, I've done this for years. And again, that's a perfect example. I remember when we went to Millwall, and I swear to God, you made more new friends in that one game than I've made in all the years I've been going there <laughs> because you were so open to talk and and, and analyze and talk about stuff and it. 
It was. It was a beautiful thing to see because it showed what Millwall can be and how welcoming it can be. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's you know, I think um, you know, I actually lived in Millwall. Funny enough, I think I was living at the time. I was living in the actual Millwall on the Isle of Dogs. Yeah, yeah. The historic Millwall. On um, shout out to Mudshoot living down there. But I was. Uh, yeah, I was disappointed by the reaction to that whole, uh, you know, the controversy around Millwall and Black Lives Matter and kneeling and booing because I felt like it's very easy in the world of football to turn racism to a tribal conversation. It's quite a social media thing, like, oh my gosh, like that one segment of society is racist and it's not well. So, well, racism is just in society, right? And it's going to manifest in lots of different places. And a lot of people were like jumping on Millwall yeah. as an excuse to kind of absolve. No one turns racist as they walk through the turnstiles. It's, no, that's the thing you carry It's a societal yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah. There's a story about you that people don't really know, but um, it's my favourite story about you, actually, which is that you were DJing in a pub, I think, one time, <laughs> and you were playing like a lot of records, and they were like, we don't want that music in here. Basically, like, you know, black music. Yeah. And you were playing Prince records, and you carried on basically like eyeballing the guys, just playing, well, not eyeballing, but just, you just basically finished your set. Yeah. Playing out on Prince and stuff for the rest of the set and you just, you did your thing. You didn't duck yeah. it. And I was like, to me, that's, you've always done the work in the hard places. It was, it was a funny one because on that one, the guy, the guy who booked me came up to me and said, look, I support you playing this. I don't support these, these racists. However, <laughs> it yeah. is a whole gang of bikers who own this, this venue. And they've told me, I, I have to come and ask you to change the music as lip service as such. If you don't want to, I support it. And I was like, yeah, I'm continuing on and finishing my set. And I finished my set and then I did disappear out the back door and get out of there as quickly as possible. But yeah, exactly that. Finish your set. Yeah, exactly. The guy, literally, the initial guy came up and leant over the decks and said, stop playing this N-word music. Um, Yeah. And I was like, all right. At, At that point, I was actually playing The Streets. So <laughs> oh my the, God. The, the, <laughs> the, the humor of that just made me go, right, I'm going f- full in on all the rap, all the funk, all the soul that I can. And yeah, yeah. that was a, that was a hell Actually, of a moment. Shout out to the streets, still relevant. An amazing track with Lowski. Have you heard it? I've not heard the it. The streets is like a new one. A new track with a drill artist, Lowski. I was like, how is the streets still making yeah. like music that cuts through? I need I know, to check wild, that man. out. Yeah, well, so- um, yeah, but back, but back, yeah, but back to you in the pub. That was a great story. I love yeah. that's my favourite story about you. It was yeah, good yeah. fun. But um, speaking of football, let's talk about football, man. Because yeah, yeah, the first book of yours I read was a cultured left foot, and you spoke earlier yeah, yeah. about regardless of what <laughs> we, there we go. Regardless <laughs> of what we do, we're still poets, and yes. that is never more relevant than in that book. Because as a person who's grown up in both of those worlds, in the football yeah. world, and then got into spoken word, they've not. There's not been a crossover. And that no. book was hearing someone speak so poetically and beautifully about the sport that I love. And it was a wonderful thing. And as the years have gone by, you've gone leaps and bounds with, I mean, I want to talk, I guess the two main things I want to talk about football-wise is both of your podcasts and then also the Raheem Sterling uh, Oh, yeah, book. yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Where do you want to begin? Because, again, it's a beautiful thing to see because, as we've said, our stories are about long journeys and long yeah, games. There's a chance the rapper line that I'm obsessed with. He says, shortcuts cut short, long runs. Yes. And it's so yes. beautiful. Oh, the goodness, more yes. you think of it and the more you analyse it, it's so beautiful because I, I want to be on a long run. And why would I want to c- take any shortcuts to cut that short? And again, it is. It's, it's, 
the end is brought nearer if you take shortcuts. And there's so many just different ways. He said that in like four words or something. Um, oh, God, but that's the, the, the true poet. You know, I, I love that you've mentioned. So, so yeah, just to explain. So I, I, my first book came out, um, A Culture Effort, and I'm very proud of it. It got nominated for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. It came out in 07. And a lot of people in the poetry scene, shout out to Chris Redmond, uh, ventriloquist, brilliant yeah. poet, uh, who ran a night called Tung Fu. Chris was like, I didn't know you even liked football. You never talk about it. I said, well, because the poetry scene, there's not much crossover in terms of like, you know, like you weren't that vocal about it. People don't really talk about it, right? Yeah, I completely agree. I remember that yeah. coming out and thinking everyone thought, oh, Moose has got a book coming out. It's going to be a collection of his poetry. It's like, no, it's a full thing about football. It's like, oh. Yeah, where's that? Yeah, people okay. are like, what the hell? And so I wrote uh, another book after that, uh, three years later, called Will You Manage? And then just last year, I wrote my first football book in 10 years, um, a children's biography, Raheem Sterling, a kind of fictionalized yeah. biography, like a children's story for eight-year-olds. And I love writing for that audience. I love it because it's like, you know, if your stuff's not good, kids will tell you about it. Like if it's not yeah. compelling, they'll drop it. They won't just like, you know, they won't <laughs> yeah. persist with it. And um, so I write the Raheem Sterling biography and that's a joy that came out January. And I'm now working after that on another children's book, which is a a story, a kind of novel, a children's novel starring Ian Wright. So it's right. a completely original story about Ian Wright where he plays a character uh, without giving too much away. The book is actually out uh, in September this year, but it's basically him mentoring a brilliant young footballer who reminds oh, wow. him of himself when he was growing up. Yeah, incredible fun. So much fun working that. So working that right now. That sounds amazing. But the two, pod- the two podcasts I do, thank you for that. Shout out to Ryan Hun, who co-founded Stadio with me, Stadio Podcast, um, which is basically a look, it's almost like trying to take a look at football, quite a reflective look at football on and off the field. We've been doing that for, I think, almost, I think, 100 episodes now. Beautifully reflective, though, yeah. because it's not just a kind of, is what they're all doing wrong? Is, no, is, no. Do, do, do yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's, it is analysis and reflection and excitement and, and, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. Positivity at the beauty of it all. Obviously, there is also, here's what's, here's what's not great. Here's what's this. But yeah, I love it. Exactly. Like, look, if it, if it was us, if we, if we were covered, if we were going to cover Millwall, the place we probably start, we might start with Millwall's run to the cup final that time. Yeah. You know, Paul Ifield balling out. Or we might talk about the time that Neil Harris discovered he had, you know, prostate cancer. Yeah. Like, and then like what he went to, what, 44 goals he got that season. We might get yeah. into the Neil Harris thing, what he meant as a cultural figure. We might yeah. like, what is Millwall as a spiritual, what does it mean to be a Millwall fan? We might get into that. Yeah. So if we talked about anything in relation to race, it would be like, we always try to take the um, the holistic view of a club or a social phenomenon. So we've been doing Stadio for like uh, 100 episodes now. We got picked up recently. We got signed up by The Ringer, an American sports network, because Spotify got in touch. So basically Spotify bought The Ringer, the sports network. And you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, we went to do two podcasts a week. And at that point, it was just me and Ryan doing it in our bedrooms in Berlin. He would produce it as well as co-host it because he's a genius like that. He's going to hate me for saying this, but Ryan Hunt, <laughs> if you don't know his work, he's a genius. He's a musical genius. He's a producer, whatever. And um, we were working on this and Spotify get in touch with us at the beginning of the pandemic. And they were like, what are you guys doing? Because Shout out to, to, to Alexandra what? Ade, who is amazing at Spotify and a big football fan and, and yeah, is, well, is responsible they, for a lot of those kind of great spots and acquisitions. But yeah. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure he saw us, but Amy Hudson got in touch with us and she was like, uh, someone was basically like, your numbers have doubled, your listeners have doubled at a time when anyone else is dropping. Like, there's no football on. How are you doing it? How are you? What we were doing, we were doing like conceptual things. So we would do like uh, 
if footballers were characters from The Wire, who would they be? Um, <laughs> yes. You know, if footballers yes. were superheroes, who would they be? And people getting into it, they were like, you know, alternate realities. Everyone, every Millwall fan, every football fan knows there's a moment when football could have gone differently. Like the shot hits the bar. If that goes in, yeah, it changes the whole future of the club. So we do all this Mate, alternate reality stuff. Playoff yeah. f- finals at Wembley against Scunthorpe when when G- Gary Alexander scored arguably the best goal ever at Wembley. And I yes. was in heaven because we were getting promoted. And then they got t- 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 two goals back. And that moment of, right, the whole season was, was a waste then. Like the, the, right, of course, there's moments, yeah. This was it. We don't get to play our finals. This is a one-off. And then it's so, yeah. ripped so away. So our podcast going, we talk about football as a human drama. Like, you know, like, uh, was it Balzac? who wrote about the human comedy, like the range. Right. You know, Balzac wrote all these novels where characters would come in and out from different novels and like weave in and out. Yeah. And the human comedy, that's what football is really. It's a human drama. And yeah. so that's Stadio. And then we've been doing that for like a while. And then just a few uh, months ago, Ian Wright started his own podcast. We'd actually interviewed him for Stadio a couple of times. He'd come on the show and you know, he became a friend of the podcast, a friend of ours. Just a great guy who I got to know through football writing. And then he came into the podcast. I got to know Ryan and now their mates, which is really funny because Ryan was an Arsenal fan growing up. So now he like works with one of his heroes. Love it. And then Ian started this podcast now called Wrighty's House, which I'm a, I'm a guest on like, I think twice a month. Yeah. A rotating cast. The four of us, so Jeanette Quatche, Carl Anker, shout out to Carl, amazing writer, um, to Ryan who produces it as well, and Ian. And it's just been a joy. Like two football podcasts that I adore working on. Yeah. And how is that I mean, to yeah. work with Wrighty? Because again, I know you weren't an Arsenal fan, you were a United fan, but still, yeah. he's a fucking iconic figure. He's an amazing human being, yeah. And, and, and character as well, as a, on and off the field. He's kind of iconic as the amazing goals he scored and the way he kind of seemed to come out of nowhere against all the odds and become, yes, you know, yes. w- 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 one of the all-time greats. And then also off the pitch, just, he's just, yeah, he's amazing, right? Well, we, we grew up watching Ian Wright, like all of us, like even though I'm a United fan, I'm a football fan first and... Yeah. You know, that, that team, the black players in that team, Paul Davis, um, David Rowcastle, Ian Wright, the way they handled themselves, you know, who, they experienced racism. They had such a resilience, such a class, such a cockiness, such a wit about them. And Ian was a hero of so many of us because of the way he carried himself. And, you know, getting to know him and working with him, he is the real deal. Like, he is who he appears to be. You listen to him, you see him. That's who he is, the realness. Yeah. Because this is a guy who basically till the age of like his, you know, 23, didn't get his break till quite late in life. So he yeah. basically was living like a regular person and then became super famous. Yeah. So his grounding is in big, being a regular dude. So, but also the thing about him is what's funny is that he, while being a regular person, he's also an elite craftsman. Yeah. So like his goal scoring craft, the stories he would tell. So we interviewed him about the art of goal scoring, like the art of the science of goal scoring. The stories he would tell, he would say like, there were games I'd go, I'd go to Hackney Marshes and play Sunday League football and I would just, I'd only use my left foot because it was the foot I didn't normally kick my strongest foot. He'd play entire games with his weak foot just to perfect it. Amazing. How wild. I know, I know. And he'd you be see, the best player on the pitch. You yeah. See, Ian Stories Wright, like that. I've, I think I touched upon this review in a, a message, but Ian Wright is one of those alternate reality stories at Millwall. Because there's, oh there's, there's, there's <laughs> this classic story of how he had, he had trials at Millwall and by chance, there was odd numbers or something, or someone hadn't turned up, so he went in goal. So I for need his, to ask him about, so, so, so yeah. his trials, he went in goal. 
We obviously didn't sign him. He then went and had trials at Palace up the road, and that's where it all began. He signed for Palace, became their top goal scorer, over yeah. to Arsenal, and and, and on to England. And it's that kind of it's a classic. Slightly what doors. could have happened at Millwall thing? It's like imagine if we'd had Ian Wright in that because again at that time we were we're just we had Cascarino and Sheringham, and then when yes. they moved on, there was there was very little left. So imagine if. Sheringham left and righty moved in to partner Cascarino or so on and so forth. It's like, what could have been? God, what a great story. What a great thought. I mean, because he would have been, anywhere he went at that point, he would have, um, he would have been extraordinary. Like any league. And it's funny because you look at him now, it's almost like there's a Jamie Vardy element there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in terms of, you know, the Jamie Vardy and Steve Bull to an extent, shout out to Steve Bull at Wolves. Yeah. Those players that come through all four divisions, they're such a rare breed because now players get picked up earlier and earlier. So talent like that doesn't slip through. Yeah. But every now and again, a brilliant player, and that's actually what, to be honest, not to plug it, but why not run a podcast? That's kind of what the book is about. It's about a great young young footballer, a young black boy who basically slips through the net yeah. very early and has no confidence. Then he bumps into Ian and Ian's like, you've still got it. You can still make something of yourself. I love so, it. Yeah, that's that's the story. It's beautiful. Well, I'll wrap things up as we've been. It's it's fl- absolutely flown by. Um, I guess what's ahead and where can people keep up to date on all that's ahead? Okay, so um, the first thing in terms of what's ahead. So I've got three books coming out this year. Uh, yes, when yeah. this comes out, I yeah. mean we've we've hardly even no, it's fine. T- touched upon in the end, it was all about love. So let's let's talk about that a bit because when this comes out, it will have j- just come out very quick. Yeah. Because this is coming out at the start of Feb. Okay, yeah. It was all about love. Comes out Jan twenty sixth. Twenty sixth. Yeah, yeah. Got so, it. so it comes out very quickly. It comes out in Rough Trade Books, and it's basically like it's based on my. So, there might be people that listen to this who've read a book called The Good Immigrant, which I wrote an, yes. an essay for. It's about race and immigration in the UK. So, that book ends with my essay about why I left the UK and moved to Germany. If you've read that essay, this book is the sequel. It starts directly after the end of that book. So this is the first, this is the this is the sequel to the good immigrant this book and it's based on my first 4 years in Germany and it's kind of my story told as a second person present tense about like me coming to terms with like growing older losing my dad in the war in Uganda and it goes on a journey from Berlin and ends in Uganda back in my dad's village wow. and it's like a kind of 30,000 word like it's not a long book but it's basically like a kind of love sexuality dating isolation basically if you've ever had a love hate relationship with a city that you've moved to, yeah. this book is for you. Yeah, it's This book is for you because it's about what it means to live in a city life, the ups and the downs of making friends, not making them, falling in love. And You know when you're in a city, a big city, but you're in love, you feel protected because yeah. if you're in love, the entire city's got a different sheen to it. Yeah. And it's about that. So that's the book and I'm so proud of it. I can't wait to continue it. And again, I know that... Well, Stephen just finished reading it, actually. Stephen, right. I sent it to yeah, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just sent me an email that a text this morning about it. So he just finished there's, reading it. So there's just, no yeah. one's perception I want or perspective I want more on that subject than yours, Musa. My favourite thing when we were lining this up, I'd messaged you saying let's do a let's do a podcast in time with the books and all that. And I was like, I'm in Vancouver at the moment, so there's time difference. I'm going to bed now, but we'll talk about it tomorrow. And you message going, yeah. wait, 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 before you go to bed, are you there for work or are you there for love? No, no, no <laughs> yeah, one else yeah. would ask that question, Musa. And it was just such a beauty. And I was, the answer was work in this instance. But it was, I was like, man, I love this guy's, the, oh, this thanks, guy's man. mind. No, no, it was look, such a, put a smile on my face as I went to bed. It's like, no, no one else would have gone, quick, before you sleep, I need to know. 
Oh it's man, because you know what it is. Because you know what it is. I talked to like. Um, Actually, it's a bit of a name drop, but no, we came to the scene together. Shout out to Ed Sheeran, who's done amazing things. He's gone and done this thing. And, you know, Ed makes pop music and he, he's some people don't necessarily think was part of our scene, but he, he did a lot of amazing work back then. 100%. Um, Actually, I want to shout out, I want to shout out one thing that Joshua Eden organized. I want to shout out. He organized the fundraiser for the, uh, the Haiti earthquake. Right. The Haiti earthquake back when it happened, he organized a fundraiser and it raised 1600 pounds. And all of the big artists of the time, the ones coming through Jamie Room, they all came and did free sets. Yeah. And one of the people that came along was Ed Sheeran. And Ed came along. This is when Ed was like still doing 300 gigs a year at one point. Ed came along. And there's the love part. Is come, I'm going to tie back, this back into love at the end of this anecdote. Ed came along. And at that point, was just like gigging, selling CDs. Ed sold. He did a 20-minute set. And he sold 200 quid's worth of CDs. And at the end, he came over, put the cash in our hands and left. Hmm. that's Ed Sheeran if anyone wants to know what yeah. that guy is that's who he is he was broke he was broke he, he had no plan B yeah. he sold 200 quid's worth of CDs gave it to charity to the Haiti earthquake and he went he never tells that story in public because yeah. it's not him but that's who he is as a person 100% and the reason I mention this in connection with this book about love is because everything he did was about love in the end like I said to him we would talk and be like I said look everyone's going to make it you're so brilliant Ed that you're going to make it big while I'm still like doing my thing and I'm going to start making it when you start retiring. And my success as a writer or my kind of emergence, I think has coincided with, he's basically like taking his first year off in years. Yeah. And in his first year off is when my stuff is really like taking off. (laughs) And I I told him, I told him this would happen. But the point I'm making about love is that like I said, this isn't about fame or accolades. It's about, I want us to all to look back in our fifties and sixties at a barbecue and be like, we did it the right way. Yeah. We succeeded the right way. That's all this is about. It doesn't matter anything else. Like we're all going to succeed. We're all good enough to make it. Screw all of us. It's about sitting there one day and be like, we did this the right way. Yeah, I, I, that's all I care about. Yeah, I've I've, I've not spoken to Ed in a few years because of a few different phone number changes over the years. But I remember the last time I spoke to him, I think Jodie Ann Bickley had told me he was having a bit of a rough time. Oh my time god! Shout out to Jodie Ann Bickley. Damn wow, right. shout out to her. She, wow. she was amazing on a podcast called Mum and Mama recently. So yeah, she's I incredible. That. Yeah, amazing, um, amazing woman. Yeah. But I'd heard that he was having a bit, I think it was, was from Jody, or maybe he'd posted about it. He was having a bit of a shit time because his enemy had, had just announced him biggest prick in the world or whatever. Like, you know, when they used to do their oh, right. sh- shitty awards yeah, yeah. and the, that, that, that have worse. No, not re- anyway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get and to I, that. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. And I reached out to him and I said, mate, I've just woken up and I've gone on my phone and what I've, I didn't see the enemy thing. You know, I've been told about that since, but what I did see was, Ed Sheeran on stage and he's playing guitar and next to him with a mic in his hand is Jay-Z. Right. But behind him on piano is Stevie Wonder. And literally leaning back to back with him is Beyonce. And I was like, you don't need to worry about what the fucking enemy think about you. Like, like you yeah, this is the yeah, kid that, that I said was sleeping on people's sofas and all sorts yeah. and doing all of this. It's like, you don't need to worry about those pretentious dickheads. You're 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 doing it, and as you say, doing it the right way. But you know, can I say this as well? He did the right work. He did the right. You know, there is a guy. Um, people might ask why people swear by him. This is a guy that did a lot of unseen work, a lot yeah. of very generous. That guy gave a lot of his time to a lot of people. He did a lot of things for a lot of people, yeah. and I 100%. I'll always when he had nothing actually actually yeah. when he was broke. 
Yeah. When he was yeah. broke, he he tells some amazing stories about those early days that, you know, we all, because, you know, no one had much in those days. You know, you were like doing your thing, you were touring. I was broke as hell. I wasn't yeah. seeing a lot of family at the time. I was like kind of, you know, I went to like an elite boarding school, but I wasn't loaded. I was a, you know, my mum was a doctor, but I didn't have, I'm not loaded. I'm just a regular, you know. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so the book is, uh, In the End, it's all about love. It's about that journey. Um, what else is coming out? So the last two things very quickly, this is a book about Eaton, one of them coming out April 15th on Unbound. And then in September, I think it's 21st, I'm not sure, but called Striking Out, featuring Ian Wright. So basically, for those who've heard his Desert Island Discs interview, his incredible Desert yeah. Island Discs interview, which is yeah. really emotional, we took that book and we made that book, without giving away too much, we made that book the emotional that interview, sorry, the emotional core of the book. Beautiful. So I listened to I listened to that interview. I took out the emotional, the key emotional points. And I was like, we'll structure it around these key moments. Yeah. And I'll, I'll write a novel based on almost like a kind of original screenplay based on on, on that on that interview. I love it. It's and beautiful. hopefully have the same emotion. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love that. Essentially, if people you know aren't the biggest of readers they can fill their whole year with Moose Rock Wonga new releases. Because again, <laughs> if, if they start in January, then the next one's out in March, then they've got a bit of, you can have some time off over the, the summer. You can maybe <laughs> read someone else, but come September, you could be back on Moose. So it's just so exciting, isn't it? To have, I mean, it's like you know, three books in a year. I'm like, I'm so excited that I get to do this. Yeah. And I'm, you know, what's so amazing about it because it's been such a long creative journey. It means I've got friends from all the different spheres of my career it's almost, it's like being a marathon runner. Like, you know, when you're running a marathon and you like finish in six hours, the beauty is if you finish that late, there's still a lot of people watching. Yeah. And they're yeah. not even there. They're not there. They're not there for the speed. They're there for the effort. And they're going, do you know what? Fair play. Because we know, despite, you know, you've done it slowly, but you still ran 26 miles. Yeah. Yeah. So the kind of applause you get, there's a warmth in it. Cause it's like, I can relate to that. Cause everyone can relate to a slow journey. I think most people yeah. on this earth can relate to a slow journey. And mine has been slow, but it's been, worth every single step i completely agree and i would r- recommend if anyone wants to s- sling moose's name in youtube like your every time that you appear on on the news or, or anywhere to give your opinion i think it's always so it's it's calm and it's well researched and do you know what i mean and i think that is it's sad Thanks, to man. it's sad to say that that's rare in the media these days well, do every, every minute every minute i'm on on screen is an hour of preparation. Yeah. I a love five that. hour, a, fi- a five minute interview is five hours of prep for me on, on, on TV. I have so much respect for that platform and the craft. Um, Beautiful. So I'll, I'll let you jump out of here, but before I jump, um, if anyone wants to find my stuff, uh, just on Instagram or Twitter, O-K-W-O-N-G-A, N for no G-A, Okwonga, just my surname. Um, yeah. But yeah, man, but like also to you, it's a real pleasure speaking to you and catching up. I feel like, your outlook, you're always looking to learn. And I, I saw something the other day criticize you. Oh, Pip's always like, he's wavering. Like he, he's like, work hard, burn yourself out. But then other people are going, no, take it easy. Take re- take, take rest, take breaks. And people are, oh, you flip-flop, Pip. And I'm like, well, no, that's, that's evolution, actually. Yeah. I saw this with Frankie Ball recently. I saw this with Frankie Ball recently. Someone was saying, yeah, yeah he used to be about this, but then he's been, he's been bought out or he's sold out. It's like, no, he's learned. He evolved. He's educated Look, himself. I- he's evolved. There's only time I ever worried about you. Not I was worried you were working too hard. A, a few years ago, I was like, I'm, yeah. I'm a bit nervous. I'm worried for you because you were so, um, you always made, your transitions in career were always perfectly timed. 
getting into podcasting, getting into acting. It was like, you just had, it yeah, was yeah. so, you, you had an instinct, you, you had such an instinct for where the world was moving. And in that journey, I was like, uh, this is, you know, not, not too personally. Hopefully I was just like, I was just like, dude, you're going to make it, but make sure that you also, you know, don't just physically burn out because you were working so, oh my God, dude, think, you're pushing us. I think you're right, man. And I think it's so important. I discuss this a lot now with anyone who's, who's self-employed because again, anyone self-employed or anyone in the arts, the belief is any time off is a sin. You know, oh like any relaxation you're, you need to pay penance for later. It's like, no, that's not how it should be. And again, I've had to learn that through, through previously believing that, through previously thinking, well, yeah. I've got a spare hour. Yeah. Uh, let's g- g- get this done rather than let's sit down and enjoy r- Well, my first, yeah, my, my first, yeah, my first, um, my priority this year, my default is to say no. Yeah. I have enough work for the year. Like literally yeah. from now until December, I have enough. I literally cannot take on anything else. I can't. Like, yeah. so if I get asked for stuff, it has to be exceptional circumstances. I take it. Yeah. The default is no. The default is literally no, because it's like, I can't, because the spiritual, like I, I worked almost all of December and I don't, I don't regret any of the work I did in December, but next year I want to end the year and have a free month. I can't. Yeah. And put your yeah, feet dude. up, mate. Yeah, 100%. Dude, well, I'm, I'm very glad that, that it was a yes to, to, to having this conversation because it's been an absolute joy, man. And again, I think it is one of those things that at times there's a reason that we've not been able to to catch up. I, I I keep saying I'm going to come to Berlin. I've not got around to it. It will happen in the end, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Current sure, restrictions sure. allowing, but um, yeah. There's a reason for these things because it's meant that we've got to have this conversation on here and be genuinely excited to 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 catch up and to to ramble. Yeah, on. dude, I'm I'm so ex- the journey you've taken. Actually, before I forget, also just, I've got to say for the book anyway. Shout out to Nina Herve and Will Burns who basically did this at Rough Trade because. I just want to mention their names because they've been amazing to me. Yeah. I just want to say that quickly, but Beautiful. that's a quick plug for them. But but back to you, honestly, <laughs> your creative journey has been, how do I say this? It's been inspiring. And also I'm not, I'm not proud of you because that sounds possessive. I'm proud to know you. It's, it, I'm it, proud I mean, of the way. Yeah. I'm proud to know you because I, I really respect the way that you grow and you evolve and you develop and you learn and you're curious and you regard yourself and your career as a work in progress. And I will always respect that. I will all, I think it's the, there's many great things about who you and what you do and who you are, but that, that to me is the greatest thing. I very much appreciate that, man. And again, it is, it goes back to that room of people that, that we had in that era. Cause I feel that way about Kay, about Polar, about yourself and about so many people from that time where everyone has found their completely own paths there. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Everyone's career isn't comparable yeah. at all, but they're all inspirational to each other in that in that way. So yeah, yeah, man, it's, it's been a joy. Well, always a joy. It's been a yeah. pleasure, man. Thank you so much. My pleasure, man. Take care to the next time, which is hopefully not another ten years <laughs> or whenever it is. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. I think you will agree that was bloody wonderful. Please scream and, sh- and shout about uh, this one. I think it is one of them that 
I really want to get as many ears on it as possible. Order Moose's book now. Um, in the end, it was all about love and pre-order one of them. They're both... I've I've read a large chunk of In the End, it was all about love and I've adored it. I'm fascinated to get my, my, my eyes onto one of them because that, as we, as, as, uh, as you heard, my intrigue at Moose's strange for me as, as a, as a, as an Essex working class, which ones are the schools that aren't paid? I always think public, but public school is the posh one, isn't it? But private school is also the posh one. But public school boys are posh kids. Um, what is the term? Like free school. <laughs> I think the 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 way you can tell if someone went to a posh school or not is if they don't know the the difference, the term for the school that they went to. Um, what is it? I've completely gone blank. It should be public school because it's for the public. But public is, but public school boys is a is thought of as a posh thing. But there's private school. Um, I'm going to get this b- b- before I stop recording, you know. State school, just state school, I guess. So, yeah, as an Essex state school kid, it's fascinating to hear Moose's journey in that world and then the choices he made in spite of all the opportunities in front of him, I guess. But, yeah, I can't wait for that. Um, anyway, thank you all for tuning in. You've been lovely. Um, we're going to go a bit crazy in Feb. There's going to be a lot of podcasts with a lot of huge guests and a lot of amazing guests. Essentially, I had two weeks off from filming and I'm isolated in a foreign country away from all my friends and family. I've not seen any of my friends and family in uh, since September. So I had a couple of weeks off. It's raining a lot. I organised a lot of podcasts and I thought rather than now just hold on to them to last me the whole year because I've got more coming up, I thought I'll just release a load in Feb. So there's some good stuff in in store for you, I promise. Um, Thank you for tuning in. You're all wonderful. Uh, And I will see you next week, at least once, if not several times. Ta-ta!